to the Critical Care Obstetrics Podcast. I'm Stephanie Martin, Medical Director at Clinical Concepts and in Obstetrics, and today I'm joined again by my partner, Suzanne McMurtry-Baird, Nursing Director at Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics. Today is the much-anticipated follow-up to the unusual hemorrhage case we presented in our last episode. We know you've been waiting with bated breath. We've read your comments, we've heard your feedback, and we're really looking forward to sharing the conclusion today. But before we get into it, let's recap our patient's situation. You'll recall she was admitted for labor induction at 40 weeks gestation and ultimately had arrest of descent, which required cesarean birth. The key components of her clinical situation include she was very sensitive to epidural medications and became hypotensive during her labor whenever her epidural was dosed. She also was hypotensive during her cesarean and required several doses of vasoconstrictors both in the operating room and in the post-anesthesia care unit. Interestingly, she did not develop a tachycardic response to her hypotension. We noted that no physician came to assess the patient in the PACU despite her abnormal vital signs. And you'll remember that she was having severe pain that she rated 10 out of 10 in her PACU, despite the fact that she had an epidural running. You may also recall they had a hemorrhage protocol, but it was not stage-based and they were not following it. The patient had a documented estimated blood loss of a liter, which would have triggered their protocol. She also had a significant drop in her hemoglobin and hematocrit postoperatively, but there was no evaluation for a possible underlying cause, and she didn't have evidence of significant hemorrhage. Now, there was documented estimated blood loss, but there were discrepancies in the documentation, and QBL was not performed. And there was no assessment or any additional evaluation to figure out why this patient had a significant drop in her hemoglobin postoperatively. She ultimately went home on postoperative day four, Her hemoglobin was six. The patient was offered but declined a transfusion, but no IV iron or other therapy was given, and there was no plan established for follow-up on this patient. So Suzanne, tell us what happened. I know everybody's very, very curious. Well, we're going to continue the unusual nature of this case. Uh, This patient was readmitted postpartum day six. She awoke at home with a sudden gush of vaginal bleeding and clots. Um, And she had gone through several pads, large pads, uh, since coming into the EG. She'd also had a syncope episode um, during the middle of the night when she got up. So she presented to the ED. Her physical exam, her capillary refill was less than two seconds. She was oriented, normal heart rate. She was cool to the touch, and she was diaphoretic. Uh, A speculum exam was performed by the emergency department physician, and there was profuse amount of vaginal bleeding with clots noted. So they started two IVs on this patient. She was started on oxygen at two liters nasal cannula, and they drew some labs, and here are the results. Her white count was 13.4. Her hematocrit was 25.7. Her hemoglobin was 8, and platelets were 335,000. Her renal labs, her BUN was 17, and her creatinine was 0.58. Her liver enzymes were normal, and her PT was 14.6, and her INR was 1.2. 
So it should be noted that she was not in DIC and she was not in shock at this point. So Stephanie, talk to me about secondary or delayed postpartum hemorrhage. Like what's the definition? You know, what are the predisposing factors and things that you should note uh, in taking a history and some of the testing that you might do in secondary or the other term for it, delayed postpartum hemorrhage? Sure. Um, Before I get into all of those details, I think it's important to comment that, you know, a patient who has a secondary or delayed postpartum hemorrhage may not go back to the same hospital where she had her birth. So the folks taking care of her may have limited uh, information or less information than they want about her history. But we'll talk about the important things that you need to, pieces of information that you need to get. But ED teams really need to know how to handle this less common situation. Um, it is an emergency, absolutely, but it's it's you're less likely to see delayed postpartum hemorrhage than you are to say, see um, hemorrhaging in other types uh, in other times of of the life cycle, like heavy menstrual bleeding or perimenopausal bleeding or even pregnancy bleeding. It's a very different kind of scenario. So you really need to have an understanding of what those underlying causes can be so that you can direct your workup and your treatment in that direction. And I think we're going to be seeing more and more patients presenting to emergency departments with these types of issues as care becomes less and less accessible. Maternity deserts, maybe the patient had a high-risk pregnancy that was outside the scope of the hospital that was closest to her, so she delivered elsewhere, and now she's just going to the closest hospital that she can find because she's in a hemorrhaging situation, or even calls an ambulance and ends up in a, in a, uh, a hospital where she maybe didn't choose or plan to go. So everybody's got to understand this and be prepared to deal with it. So what is it? Um, Secondary delayed postpartum hemorrhage is excessive vaginal bleeding that occurs between 24 hours and 12 weeks postpartum. I think most of us think of it in terms of once they've gone home and come back, but you can have delayed postpartum hemorrhage while they're still in the hospital, maybe on day two or day three. Yeah, and I want to make a point here too. When you think about the algorithms of how you might take care of this patient. Just think if she was like six weeks postpartum, that may look a little bit different than if the patient's 12 weeks postpartum. Because you and I have seen lots of algorithms of how patients would be cared for postpartum, whether they would go you know, from the ED to OB, or would they just go directly to OB, or would they stay in the ED? So this is another opportunity to improve care uh, between, you know, those two units, when you think about six weeks versus 12 weeks postpartum, I just wanted to make that point before you went on. No, it's a really good point because it, without standardization, that's where opportunities um, for mistakes and poor outcomes come up. And, uh, you know, I would imagine that many hospitals are following the recommendations and asking if someone is postpartum, but they may just count to six weeks and pregnancy complications can happen beyond six weeks for sure. Most of the time, the the most common time for a delayed postpartum hemorrhage to happen will be in the first or second week postpartum when most of these, the overwhelming majority of these patients will already be home. It's not that common, you know, somewhere between a half to 3% of all births will develop postpartum hemorrhage. And of course, we don't have truly accurate statistics on this because the farther out you get from the birth, the less likely the incident is to be recorded are associated with the birth, especially if it's at a different facility. Most commonly, when someone has a delayed postpartum hemorrhage, we're talking about retained tissue, either placenta or fetal tissue, 
Um, and we say fetal, perhaps it's an earlier loss or it was a pregnancy termination or something along those lines. But even a tiny piece of membranes or placenta can cause massive amounts of bleeding in a patient. Infection is also a potential cause and, and one that we see relatively commonly in this situation. And then sub-involution of that placental site. So, you know, the, the, the area where the placenta attaches, think of it kind of like a raw area, like if you skin your knee or something, and it has to heal over and it's going to develop a scab of sorts. And then that, that, that site, as it's healing, you can get sloughing of that healing area and the spiral arteries and all of the blood flow to that area can then are free to hemorrhage. So it's a well-described situation and that's more likely to occur in that, you know, week to two week mark. People that are predisposed to this, if there's placental abnormalities um, where there is more likelihood that there are placental fragments or membrane fragments left behind, patients who have an abruption, very precipitous deliveries or a fetal demise situation, patients with preeclampsia, any underlying infection during the birth itself, um, and patients who are smokers are at greater risk for this complication. Now, if you're the one seeing the patient, you want to get a lot of information, including, you know, some effort to quantify the amount of bleeding that they've had. How many pads have they gone through? How long has it been going on? If you have access to their birth records, great. If not, you want to try and find out as much as you can about the bleeding that occurred during birth. If it's a cesarean, it's a little harder for the patient to understand, but they should be able to give you some information. Um, even if it's, no, there was nothing. Um, what's the pattern of bleeding been since birth? Had it really trickled off and gone away? Or has she been bleeding continuously and it just got bad enough to seek care? And then, of course, any other interventions. Did she have to have a DNC after her birth? Did she have to go back to the operating room? Did she have to have some sort of a tamponade performed or uh, Jada placed or something along those lines? You want to get as much information about their birth and the bleeding that's occurred since they went home as you possibly can. Um, and even from family members, if the patient is not able to provide information or doesn't have good recollection, a lot of times family members are witnesses to all of these things and can provide some really helpful information. Now, the diagnostic testing and the physical exam things you need to take into consideration, well, any patient who has bleeding that she presents for evaluation, she must have a speculum exam. You're primarily looking for lacerations that have gone uh, unrepaired or have perhaps happened uh, post-delivery from um, sexual activity, for example. Um, you want to palpate the fundus. You want to understand the size of the uterus and where it is in its, in its involution, involution process. Uterine acne is a very unlikely cause of a delayed postpartum hemorrhage, as are lacerations, but they certainly can happen and you need to do an assessment for them. An ultrasound is an important part of this evaluation because you can see if there's any evidence of retained placenta or clots and what's happening inside the uterus and even in the abdomen, depending on the situation. At minimum, the labs that need to be drawn include a CBC with a differential because she might have an infection going on, so that differential is important, and a fibrinogen. We often forget to check for evidence of DIC in a hemorrhaging patient, especially when it's been going on for a prolonged period of time. And the farther out the patient gets from her birth, the more likely she's going to have less common or more unusual or typical causes of bleeding like a malignancy. So a, a quantitative HCG, beta HCG, is an important consideration as they get farther out from the birth itself. 
So with all of that in mind, Suzanne, why don't you update us on what was actually done and what happened to this patient in the ED? Well, you know, I will start with vital signs. So her temperature was 96.2, which we'll come back to in just a second since that's very hypothermic. She was hypotensive. Um, Her pressure is like 73 over 36, which gave her a mean arterial pressure of 48. And then her heart rate still mysteriously was not compensating. Um, Her heart rate was 76 and her respiratory rate was 24. So with that, let's think about it. She's cold, 96.2. That is going to really decrease her oxygen transport because of the affinity of oxygen to hemoglobin is going to be so increased with her being so cold. So her tissues can be hypoxic um, because of the lack of release of hemoglobin off of oxygen. And she's hypotensive, which uh, hypotension is going to cause her to decrease her cardiac output. But again, her heart rate was still in a normal range, 76. So just kind of highlight that. We'll talk about that more in a a few minutes. And you could see that she had a a, a warning sign of her respiratory rate of 24. That's still high, even though you may not think it's that high. It's still tachypnic. So immediately in the ED, they remember they started two IVs. And one of them, they gave a, a liter of normal saline bolus and she remained hypotensive. So they started her on norepinephrine, uh, started it at five mics per minute, and then titrated it up. So she's on, now on pressors because she's in shock. Um, her, uh, They started blood immediately, which was really good. They hung a unit of pack cells, started bolusing that in the ED. And then they notified the OB on call, which is such an important thing to remember And again, even if this patient is 12 weeks postpartum, notifying the OB to be involved in this care, and that may or may not be, again, in your algorithm at your hospital, or it may not be hardwired and known by the ED, but this could be and is in this situation related to her birth and postpartum. So the plan was, uh, once they notified the OB and the OB assess the patient. The plan was to go to the OR for a DNC. So they take her back and they st- they have general anesthesia and they start to do the DNC and they note that she has an anterior cervical laceration. Um, and so then they suspected that that laceration, cervical laceration extended into the intra-abdominal portion of the cervix. So they converted the surgical procedure to a laparoscopy. And it was noted that she had a cervical laceration at three and nine o'clock and it extended into the retroperitoneal space. So they repaired the lacerations and they did a uterine artery ligation. And I just, I had a question uh, for you, Stephanie, at this point, because I think that the listeners will want to know this, especially the nurses, because we aren't in there doing the surgery Um, as a surgeon, um, why wouldn't these cervical lacerations be um, visualized or known or seen or diagnosed at the time of a C-section? Yeah, so obviously this is pretty unusual, but 
you have to remember first that there's a vaginal portion of the cervix and there's an abdominal portion of the cervix. So any lacerations that are in the vaginal portion will not be seen at the time of the cesarean. At the time of C-section, especially in C-sections that are performed in during or after the second stage of labor, there's a, the cervix is much more effaced, it's much more friable and fragile and much easier to lacerate as you're delivering the baby or even during her pushing process. So it could have been caused uh, by the pushing that she was doing and been pre-existing the surgery, or it could have just been one of the things that happen as we're delivering the baby. You're not going to see the laceration. We do look for lacerations and we do look and, and make sure that the incision is closed, but you're not going to see every laceration if it's not bleeding, so if which would be highly unusual, but if it's not bleeding, you're not going to go rooting around and doing a bunch of dissection trying to assess the cervix if there's no bleeding. So it could have been hidden by the bladder. These were off laterally. And again, if it appears as if everything is um, hemostatic and corrected surgically while you're correcting or uh, repairing the incision, the uterine incision, you're not going to go looking around for lacerations. So I'm suspecting that these lacerations were very lateral and probably lower, not all the way up to the level of the uterine incision where they would be obvious and just covered by peritoneum and bladder, which made it not visible openly at the time of the cesarean. So this patient, the lacerations, like I said, were repaired and she'd lost uh, three liters of blood during this this surgical procedure. So they responded with um, lots of volume replacement, eight units of pack cells, one unit of cryo, three units of FFP, and one platelet. Uh, she was she had urine output of like 275 during the surgical procedure and also had three liters of IV fluid. So things to think about at that time with that volume replacement, don't forget to keep your patient warm. You know, this patient was already cold. And when you start giving a lot of fluids that quickly, you're going to possibly, you know, increase that hypothermia. So keeping the patient warm during that time is so important. The other thing to remember is that when your patient is open during surgery, they are actively losing heat. So the longer the case lasts, the greater the chance this patient's going to become hypothermic and that's compounded by the fluids, the, her belly is open to the air, the, you know, you've got to be making aggressive efforts to keep this patient warm because everything's working against you. And as Suzanne pointed out, cold increases the likelihood of acidosis and the lethal triad, you know, which includes acidosis and hypothermia. You've got to be very, very cognizant of that, uh, cognizant of that so that you're doing everything you can to reverse and improve her clinical situation. Right. And, 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 and be proactive about it. You know, don't, um, in this patient, since she was cold, when she got to the hospital, you know, you want to be proactive. So even, you know, starting that bear hugger or whatever it is, warm blankets in the ED in the OB unit, and then continuing that in the OR is so essential, warming those fluids. So uh, again, just being proactive and trying to get her temperature up. So the patient moves to the PACU. Um, her PACU labs are drawn within the first hour. So just note that it, the, the quicker that you draw labs after a hemorrhage, a significant hemorrhage especially, 
You're not going to have time for these labs to truly reflect what the end is going to be. So they can give you a, a, a moment in time look, um, but they're not going to equilibrate so quickly. And in the first hour, you know, remember she said eight units of pack cells, one cryo, three FFP, and one platelet. Here's her labs. Her hematocrit is 15. Her hemoglobin is 5.1. Her platelets are 127. And her fibrinogen is 141. So definitely now this patient is also in DIC, uh, consumptive blood loss from the massive amount of hemorrhage that the patient had, three liters in the OR. They draw an uh, arterial blood gas on the patient, and her values are 7.14 for her pH. Her PCO2 is 34, so we're going to have, that's high. Her PO2 is 26, and her base is 12. Her O2 sat is 33 for her blood gas. I I am surprised that this patient did not code. That's probably one of the lowest uh, PAO2 values that I've ever seen without a code situation. So the hemoglobin... Uh, being so low, really started to raise their suspicion for continued concealed bleeding in this situation. She's in metabolic acidosis, and they returned her to the OR, where she underwent a hysterectomy. So think about what some of the key points are in this case. Um, You've got a patient, primogravid patient, who undergoes a hysterectomy, Uh, So we have a severe maternal morbidity um, associated with this case. Um, The cervical laceration that she had is such a very unusual cause, as we stated, for delayed postpartum hemorrhage. But also it was such an unusual presentation for a patient. So we just discussed also cervical lacerations are much more common when the cesarean delivery is performed in the second stage, but you would expect bleeding, the vaginal bleeding, to be immediate or persistent throughout her postpartum um, period, and that wasn't the case with this patient. So I know that in assessing for a cervical lack or a vaginal lack, usually that's that trickle of bright red bleeding that just is like, like I said, persistent, it doesn't stop. And that did not occur again. Also, though, when you think about retrospectively looking at this case, a retroperitoneal bleed would behave completely different since that's such a large space. Blood can be going into that space and you don't have any evidence of it coming out of the vagina. So the presentation is not typical what you would think about a cervical lack or a vaginal laceration. Yeah, I wanted to kind of highlight the retroperitoneal bleed. If we didn't make it clear enough in the case, these lacerations were leading to bleeding that was in the retroperitoneal space. So she was bleeding. It just wasn't showing up the way that it would normally do. And one of the reasons that they behave differently is Uh, Now, this patient had significant pain in the PACU, and that absolutely could have been related to this, but they present differently than patients who are bleeding into the abdominal cavity where the blood is irritating the abdominal lining 
uh, the abdominal side of the peritoneum and not behind the peritoneal cap, the peritoneal lining. So clinically, they look different, but it can still be diagnosed with imaging if you suspect that there's bleeding happening. Yeah, and you would think too when you have bleeding into the abdomen, you know their abdominal girth gets larger and larger, um, which. I don't know. It was one of the first things I learned in nursing school when I was thinking about post-op patients in the PACU, you know, abdominal growth getting larger and larger, but you wouldn't see this, you know, you can't visualize that area growing, right? So that's why it makes it so different for assessment. Yeah. And if you don't suspect bleeding, you're never going to look for bleeding, right? You know, you'll never look for it. So especially with a retroperitoneal hemorrhage, whether the patient is more classically presenting with hypotension and tachycardia, we see these missed. But so the the real key here is you've got to suspect bleeding in a patient who's hypotensive and ultimately is severely anemic. Right. I think the other thing we need to talk about is like the RN and physician responsibilities. You know, this patient, when she was, you know, we highlighted in the previous episode that she was in PACU, like who do you call when you suspect bleeding in the PACU? Do you call the anesthesiologist? Or as a nurse, you know, again, who do I call if she just has abnormal vital signs? Like this patient, she was hypotensive. And the first thing I think about is hypotension in the PACU, it, you know, hemorrhage, right? But she didn't have any evidence of that. So at that time, except for this, you know, low blood pressure, her heart rate wasn't responding with a tachycardia, um, and so who do you call? And then when she comes back into the ED, you know, you have an ED physician uh, or an OB physician. And depending upon a lot of times, like I said, in these scenarios and these algorithms that we have in place, a lot of hospitals, they may not have that defined. So and then whose responsibility is it to to do what? So having those defined and planned out ahead of time is so it's so much better than on the fly when you have a situation like this. Um, the other key point in this case is again hemorrhage protocols. So look at your hemorrhage protocols and and see when you are, you know, if you're following it, number one, don't have a protocol that you can't follow, right? And everybody should be on the same page with the hemorrhage protocol. That is nurses and physicians and practicing it together to make sure that that protocol works for your team and how you're going to do that QBL. And then how do you make it cumulative? A lot of teams will just do QBL during uh, the birth process, but they don't continue it then during the postpartum period. Um, Have your protocol stage-based. And what you do in each stage. Um, And not all of the items listed in each stage is going to be applicable for every patient. So for example, not every patient needs to have a uterine tamponade device or a JADA, depending upon the cause. That certainly wouldn't have helped this patient, right? So you need to understand having that diagnosis, what is the cause of the hemorrhage is really essential in any type of postpartum hemorrhage. Postpartum hemorrhage is a symptom of a cause. So making sure that you have a diagnosis as to what is causing that postpartum hemorrhage is key. Um, 
Also, having the provisions to have a bedside provider assess the patient. So, for example, you have continued early warning signs of maternal compromise with the hypotension. There has to be a provider come and do an assessment on the patient. This can't be something that you just relay over the telephone and relay over the telephone and relay over the telephone and no physician comes to the bedside to make a diagnosis again as to the cause of the abnormal assessment. Yeah, and I want to highlight here, some of the listeners may be saying, but she wasn't hemorrhaging in the PACU. What are you talking about? She wasn't hemorrhaging. Her EBL of one liter would have triggered their hemorrhage protocol because she had that amount of blood documented, that loss documented during her surgery. So it would have triggered them to do other things that weren't done. But the other thing is, she had abnormal vital signs in the PACU that were normalized and ignored. So the fact that she wasn't having heavy vaginal bleeding doesn't mean that they should not have followed their own hemorrhage protocol. It's just pointing out, you've got to know your protocol and what's in it um, and know what your triggers are for activating additional interventions. Right. The other thing I think is an opportunity in a lot of the postpartum cases that we see is having defined discharge criteria from PACU or or from postpartum, sorry, from the postpartum going home, you know, that has to be individualized. I get that part, but what constitutes normal for this patient? So would it have been a hemoglobin? Would it have been her vital signs? I know her vital signs, her pressure had normalized. She was slightly tachycardic, which would have been anticipated being as anemic as she was. But in general, I think discharge criteria from postpartum is a key uh, missing component of our care. Uh, And based upon that patient and how you, you know, adjust for each patient, I think is really important. Um, Also, based upon the patient's diagnosis and how she is going home, that's going to trigger not only your education, but also your follow-up plan. So in this patient, she was going home with a hemoglobin of six. You know, what is your plan for that severely anemic postpartum post-op patient? How quickly do you want to see that patient? When do you want her to come back in? You know, what would be your teaching for anemia and hypotension um, and additional bleeding? So how you educate a patient like this is so essential. So that is the end of our unusual hemorrhage case. I hope you um, got some clinical pearls in how you wanted to take care of a patient that's similar. I thought I'd kind of just add before we close out, Suzanne, that my what I think was happening here, if I didn't make it clear, I think... She had the lacerations probably at the time of cesarean and they weren't obviously bleeding and and probably not easy to see or couldn't be seen at the time of C-section. And I think that was why she was hypotensive and in pain, but they probably tamponaded themselves. And because they're in the retroperitoneal space, that the clot itself probably controlled the bleeding to a certain degree. And then later she rebled, and these lacerations are continuous with the vagina. And so that ultimately led to vaginal bleeding. Obviously, there's no way to prove it. But for me, that's the most likely explanation of how this situation occurred. 
But more importantly, as you've been pointing out, than understanding exactly the details in this patient, it's what can we take to the next patient? What can we learn from her situation that would maybe teach us how to take care of the next patient, not normalizing abnormal vital signs or clinical findings? And and, uh, there's so many opportunities here, even though things ultimately ended well for this patient. Yeah, that's a great point. And I appreciate you summarizing that, um, especially from a physician and surgeon, you know, perspective, because, you know, we can recognize the abnormal assessments, but kind of understanding, you know, kind of this unusual case is so important. But thanks, everybody. Um, I really, we really appreciate your feedback on this. Uh, We've gotten a lot of interaction this week as we um, put out the part one of this case and um, y'all gave us some great feedback and and, and perspective uh, for clinical units across the country. And we appreciate that. Keep those coming in. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. You can learn more about our company at www.clinicalconceptsnob.com. You can also follow us on our Facebook page, which is Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics, or on Twitter at OB Critical Care, and on Instagram at Critical Care OB. You can also email us or send a direct message for suggestions on future podcasts. Everybody have a great week. This podcast was produced by Austin Baird. Are you looking to create a podcast? Please email me at podcastnashville at gmail. That is podcastnashville at gmail.com.